Hello everyone, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 22nd of April 2013, and it's great to be talking to Tony Gosling, who is a freelance investigative and radio journalist based in Bristol here in the UK, specialising in censorship, terrorism, religious hate and the secret state. Tony Gosling was at one time a BBC reporter working for Greater London Radio, BBC Radio Solent, which is a station I remember from being brought up on the South Coast, and uh, BBC Wiltshire Sound, but he now works on a number of different projects, including his research website, Bilderberg.org, and a weekly politics show, Friday Drive Time, on Bristol Community FM. So, Tony, thank you ever so much for agreeing to talk to us. No, it's no problem. One thing I would add, though, is that I'm also one of the editors of the 9-11 Forum, which is where most of the research work I do now goes, uh, and it's obviously uh, an internet forum which is collaborative with literally thousands of other people For example, we've just had these Boston bombs, and uh, it's one of the go-to places online around the world, certainly one of the most important, I think, in Britain. Uh, Wherever there's some kind of big terror incident, uh, which is being splashed across the media, people come to that site, people get together. Maybe you haven't even communicated with each other for years or months to discuss and pick apart some of the evidence to do with you know these big terror incidents because it's quite clear now that the military industrial complex is working very closely with the mainstream media in really trying to persuade and bamboozle the public to take a particular line on these uh, horrific events. Mm-hmm. Can you get out that website again? Sorry, yes, that's 911forum.org.uk. It's quite an old site. It was set up after the September 11th attacks around about 2004 as people started getting together in Britain to discuss and campaign around getting the truth out about what really happened on September 11th. Uh, in the US, and uh, and then you know it was also a big place for people to come together to discuss uh, the London bombings when they happened in 2005. So it's one of those go-to places online to see what people are saying, and actually maybe to put your oar in too, to tease out some of the reality behind the media hype. Uh, I mean, one of the things I would say right now about this Boston bombings is there is absolutely no coverage being given in the mainstream media in Britain, apart from a little article in The Independent about the very strong evidence that there were some private security people involved possibly in this bomb attack and also that uh, there were some kind of exercise going on at, mm. in Boston, both of which are very much the hallmarks of some kind of private security false flag attack. And it could be that both of the suspects that have been arrested, um, the um, Chechen uh, or sort of southern old Soviet area people that have been arrested and splashed across the world's the Western world's uh, press could well be innocent. Um, and of course, if they're both dead, or one one of them looks as if, well, certainly one of them is dead, the other one isn't. Of course, dead men tell no tales, and so there's no court case. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this. It's a sort of, in a way, it's a sort of last call of appeal, the internet. In the old days, much of the mainstream press was the world's last call of appeal, but that now has been really, in, in the West, has become very much like a Soviet system, where there is a particular line that all of the mainstream press take on, a, on an incident, and there isn't any real proper investigative journalism or discussion about it. Mm-hmm. And apart from your website, where would you think the best source is to look for evidence with respect to this? You know, you, you say it could well have been some kind of drill that was taken Taking place. Where would you say is the best place to look for evidence on this? Well, when I say a drill, I mean that these are often used as the cover for real attacks, uh, as was the case on September 11th as well. 
you know, there were all sorts of drills going on, which then paralyzed the U.S. defenses. So when there was a real attack, of course, people who were supposed to be defending the country were bamboozled into believing that it was, in fact, just a drill. And so they didn't react as they would do if they were part of their professional capacity. Mm. So this is really an important thing for people to understand how these... But whereabouts you go online... One of the best, I think, is Washington's blog, which is a consistently good blogger, where you, you will find quite a balanced view of it, which is saying, well, we don't know yet, but why are the mainstream media not reporting this evidence? And it's because, largely because the mainstream media has become part of an establishment in the NATO countries, um, which is really coming out with, a, with specific lines and dominating the way we think. You know, it, it, there isn't really much room, if any, for dissenting voices in the West these days. Mm-hmm. That very much seems to be the case. Um, I actually wanted to speak to you mainly about your work with regard to the Bilderberg Group, um, because I've been doing a series of interviews here looking at what people call the New World Order, and I've been trying to understand how various semi-secret globalist organisations are pushing us towards world government. And of course, one of those main groups that came up in conversation was the Bilderberg Group. And I wanted to speak to you because I know that you've done a lot of research into this particular group over the years. And... I understand that it's rumoured that we're just a month away from the next Bilderberg meeting, most probably here in the UK at the beginning of June. So I thought it would be great to get your comments on this group's history and place in the modern world. So before I ask you in great detail about that, could you say something about your research website, Bilderberg.org, and what it was that led you to start that project in the first place? Well, yeah, I mean, I'd, be, I'd worked in mainstream media, uh, trained by the BBC. I worked particularly worked in London as a researcher, really one of those sort of behind-the-scenes people that sets up interviews for... Uh, I was working on two programmes, mainly the lunchtime programme on Greater London Radio. Well, actually, it was the evening one to start with, which was Tommy Vance's evening show. And then, you know, there was a, another lunchtime programme that I worked on, but this was all news and current affairs setting up stuff. And during that time... It was the Johnny Walker show, the lunchtime show. And and during that time, I was very much aware of, you know, some of the big terror stories at the time because we used to cover quite a lot of stuff. For example, we did a lot on Lockerbie at Greater London Radio. Uh, it was one of those things that the news editor quite rightly felt that the truth hadn't actually come out about that. And so he was very interested in keeping and going some of the, uh, what would now maybe be called the conspiracy theories. But, I mean, these are very much, you know, clinically mainstream theories, a bit like 7-7, many of the families and victims of people involved with the 7-7 bombings have been really, you know, actually crying out for justice, and they're really annoyed about the whole process that's happened, and those those voices have virtually been ignored, but back in the, the early 1990s, some IRA bombing campaigns and the Lockerbie one I mentioned, there were people also that were complaining at the time, but they were listened to more. Nowadays, that doesn't really seem to happen. But it was particularly the difference between these sort of false flag attacks, like many believe the Lockerbie bombing was, and the genuine IRA terrorist attacks. And I suppose that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I became so interested in analysing terrorism and felt that I had, you know, a a view which was, uh, it seemed my views, which were to actually get to the bottom of these things rather than just to call anybody that didn't go along with the establishment line a conspiracy theorist, you know, sort of came out. And so once I'd finished with the BBC or they'd finished with me, because it just became quite clear to me that the whole entire organisation was moving in a much more pro-royalty, pro-establishment direction. 
and really becoming more of a kind of big brother organization. I found it more and more difficult to do, you know, really important stories as part of the BBC. And it was becoming really quite clear that uh, they didn't really like the sorts of questions that I was asking either. And so I decided that I'm just going to have to uh, go freelance because I can't have someone peering over my shoulder the whole time telling me what to think. You know, the whole point of having journalists and investigative journalists is that the public trust those people. And, of course, there are many thousands of journalists out there who, you know, maybe reluctantly, but they sell their soul because they know that in order to keep their career, keep their nice job, that they will have to just sort of go along with the party line on many issues. And, and if they're going to tap on the shoulder from the editor or one of the senior staff to say, you know, you've got to take this line on this one, uh, and then they start questioning it, then, you know, they, they may lose their jobs, you know, they may lose their prestige and all that kind of thing. So there's a sort of vanity journalism growing in the West. And it was at that point that I came across the Bilderbergers whilst doing a bit of campaigning, land rights campaigning at uh, Wandsworth Bridge in London in 1996. Someone turned up on site and said, well, it's great you're campaigning on land, but what about money? And what about these people, the Bilderbergs, that control most of the Western world? Well, you know, I was very sceptical about the idea that there was this sort of shadowy group that controls most of the Western world. But I dutifully wrote down in my notebook this word, the Bilderbergs. And when I got back to Oxford, where I was living at the time, it just so happened that I'd had um, access to, given free access for a few weeks to the Reuters article database in a sort of promotional offer. And I thought, I'd plug this name in here. And of course, I thought nothing would come out or just a load of nonsense conspiracy theories. And actually what came out was one of the most startling lists of some of the rich and powerful people in the Western world getting together in secret that I've ever seen. So I took some of those lists, literally pretty much straight away, and stuck them online. That is the attendance lists, because they weren't online. They were only in Reuters' private system with a big sign on them saying that these items are not for publication, even though they were press releases. Now, I mean, that immediately makes me very suspicious. If you see a press release that's not for publication, what the hell is going on? And, and I was absolutely astonished to see that within even just a few weeks that these Bilderberg attendance lists were getting incredible numbers of hits. In fact, so many that my service provider contacted me, it was Demon Internet at the time, to say, we're going to have to take your website down because you're getting too much traffic. Now, this was just a few pages. So, I mean, obviously there was, a, there was an appetite around the world for these lists. Sure. And that's really how the website started. Uh, it was actually uh, the sister of one of the goddaughters of Henry Kissinger, that gave me, uh, I think it was about £150 it was, to get the Bilderberg.org domain and actually to get a, a formal proper website set up and move off of Demon Internet and get a proper um, website. So that was a bit ironic that it was it was Kissinger's, the sister of Kissinger's goddaughter that was also up for um, getting this information online and, and giving me a helping hand at the time as I was broke to do it. As many, of course, many researchers and journalists are broke. There's not a lot of money mm. in telling the truth in Britain these days. Indeed. Could you give us something of a short history of the Bilderberg Group itself, you know, when it was formed, what its purpose was, who was actually involved in setting it up? Well, it depends how far you want to go back. The official history starts in 1954, but the unofficial in 1944. So which do you reckon? Um, How about the unofficial history? That sounds interesting. Well, the, uh, the unofficial history really starts in, in September 1944, something called Operation Market Garden. This is something that we've dug out over the last few years about the Bilderbergs, uh, you know, with other researchers in other parts of the country. That astonishingly, two of the people that were later to, be, to chair the Bilderberg conferences were both involved in this abortive mission, Operation Market Garden. Market Garden was part of the end game of World War II after D-Day. 
And uh, what had happened was uh, after the D-Day invasion, there was a really a very big struggle, a big fight on, because uh, Hitler's armies knew and his commanders knew that they had a very good chance of actually knocking back the Americans and the British invaders uh, of the continent you know, as we took over from the Nazi occupation. If they could destroy the ports and throw us back onto the shore, they could actually maybe you know, win the war by putting such a hammer blow onto an important spearhead that the Allies had put onto during D-Day. And it was by no means certain as to what was going to happen because the supply lines for the British and American troops were very vulnerable. And so there was a battle called the Falaise Gap Battle which was really the final deciding thing as to whether the Germans were going to successfully throw back the Allied D-Day invaders. And once that battle was lost by the Germans, there was a decision made in Germany, and Hitler himself said, we're going to bury our treasure, because they realized they were going to win the war, but it's just that they wanted to make sure that all the looted cash from right across uh, Europe and other parts of the world that they got was very safely put away for future exploits, really a kind of Fourth Reich. That was uh, around about August 1944. There was a, something called the Red House Meeting of German industrialists uh, organized by Martin Bormann, who was Hitler's deputy. And that was uh, in Brussels in, not actually sure, maybe it was in Strasbourg. I'm not sure. One of the EU centers uh, in 1944. Anyway, at that point, that decision was made. Now, in September, this Operation Market Garden happened, which was really a masterful bit of strategy by Montgomery. He decided that the best way to finish the war as quickly as possible, kill as few people as possible, just get it all over with, was to come round the northern flank of the of the German Siegfried line, right into the Ruhr. And that if they could put down all these uh, paratroopers through Holland, it's been portrayed very well in the film A Bridge Too Far, and if your listeners haven't heard seen that film, then they really should, because it, it, it does explain, you know, it's actually quite true to the reality of the situation, even though it uh, kind of misses out some of the important facts. But, but anyway, so it is in September 1944, all these paratroopers dropped out of the sky right across Holland in order to bring the, the Allied ground forces round and into the Ruhr. Now, that would have really cut the Germans' manufacturing base and also many of their supply lines on the Western Front, and the German war effort would have, it's pretty clear now, would have collapsed. But it didn't work because, crucially, of course, it wasn't a bridge too far. That's what the uh, myths say. But Lord Carrington, Lord Peter Carrington, who's still alive, was actually a young captain in the Grenadier Guards at Nijmegen. And he's portrayed in this film just as the British are hanging on in Arnhem, uh, which is the farthest bridge that they've got to get to by their fingernails. And I actually met uh, Major Tony Hibbert, who was one of the last people at that bridge. They were clinging on by their fingernails there. And the Americans had just taken the Nijmegen Bridge. Anyway, inexplicably, Lord Carrington sat in his tank for something like 14 hours doing nothing while the British were uh, dying. The final remnants of the British had been dying. Now, if he and his colleagues had got in their core of tanks, I mean, we had at least the Grenadier Guards. I mean, we're talking about about 200 tanks that just sat there and did nothing for several hours. And now, if they'd have gone down the road to relieve the forces at Arnhem, Operation Market Garden would have been a success. We've now found out there was actually nothing in between because the German commanders had planned to blow up the Nijmegen Bridge and when that bridge didn't blow up because it, uh, the wires had been snipped by the Dutch resistance, there was nothing to stop all these tanks streaming down the road to Arnhem to make the operation a success. But 
Yeah, there really still has to be questions asked about why Lord Carrington and his Grenadier Guards stopped at that point and didn't actually go to complete the mission that had been set before them. Anyway, what happened was, because Carrington and his friends didn't go and relieve the British troops, there was a pocket formed in Arnhem, and what was called the Hexenkessel, which was a German word for the witch's cauldron, formed around them with flame-throwing tanks, all sorts of the, you know rockets, this kind of thing, that were just massacring the British. Now, the reason I've been telling you this story is because this exact same spot, Oosterbeek, on the outskirts of Arnhem, was where the very first Bilderberg meeting took place ten years later in 1954. So that's really the opening shots of the Bilderberg conferences is happened 10 years beforehand. And, you know, some people might say, well, it's a pure coincidence that it happened in the same spot. But, of course, um, the chairman of the Bilderberg conference, that very first conference, and right the way up to the mid-70s, was Prince Bernhard of the Netherlands, who was, in fact, himself an enthusiastic member of the Nazi party. And almost as soon as he could be, he became enrolled as an officer in the SS. And he was chairing this meeting and he chaired the Bilderberg meetings for around about 20 years until he was disgraced in 1975 in the Lockheed scandal. Uh, he left a bit of paper in a bin that uh, one of the chambermaids in the hotel fished out of the bin and then gave to the Dutch press, and they found that he'd taken a million-dollar bribe from Lockheed in order to persuade the Dutch Air Force to take Lockheed aircraft, and then he had to resign. I mean, this is the kind of birth of the Bilderbergs in, the 19, in 1944 and in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Yes, but um, one thing I wanted to ask you about that is how seriously should we take this criticism that he was a Nazi? Because he was clearly, there's evidence that he was a Nazi at university, but did he not denounce Hitler? Did he not reject that Nazi past? Well, yes, uh, of course. But I think it's not really fair to say that the Dutch people really embraced him because he married into the Dutch royal family and then said, oh, well, I've changed sides. But to what extent did he change sides? Certainly during the Second World War, the Americans didn't trust him. The Admiralty didn't trust him. Funnily enough, though, King George VI did trust him. He actually ordered Ian Fleming, who was working for the security services at the time in my six, to give him security clearance. And he was involved in the planning of Operation Market Garden. So you've got Prince Bernard of the Netherlands and Lord Carrington both chairing this meeting. I mean, I, I look upon it as a sort of post-World War II Nazi elite, people who believe that they're better than everybody else in the Western world and that they, they have absolutely no interest in democracy. They have no interest in ordinary people. They want to run the whole of the Western world like a sort of massive people farm for their own personal benefit. And, of course, this fits quite nicely with the Nazi ideology, that sort of Darwinian survivor of the fittest, we're tougher than you, we're better than you, we're some kind of master race. And it seems that uh, everybody else in the world, including the, West, the public in the Western world, are, are treated in this uh, dismissive manner by these people. And can you give us an idea of what kinds of people attend the Bilderberg meeting? People are often invited if they're powerful in some way or another, but they're not really on the programme. If they don't agree with the way that, for example, the European Central Bank is dealing with the euro debt crisis, then they will be invited along to these conferences in order to try and get them on board. They'll be sort of schmoozed and wooed with having these kings and queens and, well, we've got all these most powerful people in the Western world here. You must go along with what we say. Some people do. It seems like Jonathan Porritt, former guy from Friends of the Earth, seems to have been completely schmoozed by them and going along with all their ideas about we have to reduce the population of the world, this kind of thing. 
and others don't, like, for example, Will Hutton, who was editor of The Observer, who was in you know, some, some ways quite critical of a lot of the policies the Bilderbergers were putting out. And he's still critical, but he went along to one of these conferences. So you kind of have a kind of hardcore, which is a steering group, the military-industrial complex, the banking elites of the Western world, the oil cartels, um, some of the big food giants, you know, food cartels. But probably the most worrying is the side of all of this is you've got a whole load of politicians in there too who clearly are not loyal to the people who vote them in. You know, they are far too friendly with um, with these Bilderbergs. Having said that, though, they are the ones that the Bilderbergers are trying to persuade. And that is exactly what these conferences are all about. You're in a little secret club, or we're going to tell you the way the world really works. I mean, for example, the foreign minister of Greece I met at one of these Bilderberg meetings outside, he'd come out to get some cheap cigarettes. He said, the atmosphere in there is horrible. So here's an example of a decent politician who's been invited along one of these meetings, realises that this, I've got to go, really, because, you know, I want to try and have some influence. But, of course, what he doesn't realise is the Bilderberg are not interested in anybody influencing them. All they want to do is tell politicians, media people, etc., how they're going to behave and uh, what the line is for the Western world over the next few years. I think they're really probably the most monstrous, pernicious organisation that's ever been created, certainly since the Nazi Party in the 1930s and 40s. There's a quote by Dennis Healy, which I think bears out what you just said, but doesn't doesn't put it so starkly when he said, we make a point of getting along younger politicians who are obviously rising to bring them together with financiers and industrialists who offer them wise words. Yeah, well, I mean, that kind of wisdom is actually not wisdom at all. It's really about greed. And if you go down to the real basics of this, it's about people who are prepared to sell out the rest of the planet. I mean, whether it's to do with ecology and messing up the environment uh, with pollution and, and that kind of greed, or whether it's just a sort of ideological thing. What they're doing is they're really accumulating lots and lots of wealth to themselves at the detriment of other people. They also see it, they get a pleasure from seeing other people deprived because, of course, that puts those other people in their power. They have to come to them for money to survive. You know, that this is, becomes like a drug and they have to have more and more money and more and more power and they get a kick out of this. This is a cult, essentially, because it's incredibly secretive. The actual agenda and the people who are actually organising the meetings' agenda is completely secret, and nobody's supposed to be allowed to know what is going on. But uh, once you're in, you're in. And, of course, your loyalty is to them, not to the outside world. And there are formal ways of making sure people don't talk. For example, everybody who goes there, including the politicians, are sworn to secrecy. This is what makes it so cult-like. Mm. I mean, you know, it may as well be a witch's coven, you know, because that's the same kind of promises that are gotten from people that join covens. And Freemasonry is also involved. I mean, you know, the, the guy who organised the 1998 Turnberry Conference here in Britain, Andrew Palmer, he was the uh, personal assistant to the Duke of Kent, who's the head um, Grand Master of World Freemasonry. So you can see these sorts of, there's a very, very strong cultish element to what they do. And, and this may be one of the reasons why a lot of the media are really afraid of covering it. It's almost like you're dealing with some kind of thing that is outside your scope of understanding. And so the best thing is just to ignore it. Well, I mean, that's not uh, investigative journalism. But going back to the greed, well, once people have got all the things they want, you know, they've got 20 houses, they've got yachts, they've got what they want is they want to buy political influence. They want to be the law. They want to start buying parliaments. They want to start taking over things like the BBC. You know, they want to take over anything that which which they can use to influence the public. 
And this is where the stage they're at now. I mean, they take, I mean they've take. mean, they also taken over many countries, of course. You know, you look mm. at the oil deals that have been done in, in Iraq, uh, things, and those sort of deals that have been done in Libya, and these countries are being taken over by these people. And what annoys me more than anything else, really, is to see that at the heart of the Bilderberg is the military-industrial complex. Companies like EADS, the biggest defense manufacturer in Europe, are right in the middle of these groups. And what are they doing? You know, well, they're actually making vast amounts of money through influencing the way that the Western politics goes and that the Western foreign policy is developed. And they stand to gain as a result. So that's why I say it's so pernicious. But Bilderberg itself just describes itself as a kind of high-level talking shop, doesn't it? It doesn't actually give any impression that it has any effect on policy in national governments at all. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't admit to being a cult. But what cult does admit to being mm. a cult? I mean, you know, the thing that is makes that really flags it up as something to be looked at in, in this sort of suspicious manner that I do is the secrecy. If there is no problem with, you know, what they're doing, then let's have some openness. And certainly there's, there are serious, serious problems when you've got George Osborne going along uh, as Chancellor of the Exchequer of Britain, going along to, to Bilderberg meetings with his Treasury team and his civil servants saying that it's a private function, a private meeting. Well, I mean, he's lying. He's quite clearly lying. And if you've got a civil servant, what is a civil servant doing going along? To the, I mean, he's got to be open about what he's doing there. If he's going to this as part, as part of his role as Chancellor of the Exchequer, then the public has to have access to all the d- things that he's saying, all the decisions that he's making, mm. and all of his notes. Absolutely. If he doesn't, mm. then he's a traitor. Do you think that this group is actually as significant as some of the other organisations around the world? And I'm thinking of the Trilateral Commission, CFR. Well, uh, because certainly, just hang on a minute, because it's certainly it's more significant than the Trilateral Commission. Let's just go one by one. The Trilateral Commission came along in the 1970s because Bilderberg had been going for 20 years and many countries, particularly places like Japan and the Far East and Australasia, people like that, Singapore, we're getting annoyed. You know, you're not inviting along to, us along to these meetings. They're only the NATO countries. You know, but we realise that this is where policy is made, which affects the whole world. So, you know, we want to be in there. And there was a lot of complaints made by these nations that were outside the NATO zone, but you know, so-called on board with the Western world. So that's why the Trilateral Commission was created. It's a lower tier than Bilderberg. And you're right to point out, you know, things like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Royal Institute for International Affairs. These are, they're kind of like the ivy which is strangling the tree. They are the parallel organisations to official government bodies. So they're privatised versions of the Foreign Office of the State Department. And they have become so puffed with all of the fantastic amount of money that uh, the Bilderbergers command that they are now far more powerful. I mean, for example, their uh, publications go uh, have a great deal of influence. They can put on lavish conferences, this kind of thing. That the Foreign Office um, is just not able to do because it's you know too busy actually trying to do its job supposedly. So they have become kind of a, sh- a shadow version of the democratic system, but it's all entirely privatised and entirely in the hands of the big corporations, the same big corporations, by the way, that stand to gain from stealing land and from war crimes and you know waging war and taking over entire territories. The entire Western NATO foreign policy agenda and the media analysis of it has been privatised, taken over by a small number of private interests that are now running it for their own private profit. 
And do you see them as working towards a one-world government? I mean, Daniel Estulin describes it as a kind of one-world corporation. Is that how you see it shaping up? Well, I think that, I think that's the way they would love to, it to be. I mean, you know, you go back to the 1930s and 40s, and Hitler saw himself as uh, the world dictator. You know, he was going to be sort of king of the world, uh, and that's exactly what his plan was. He saw, and quite rightly, I think, Europe as key to opening up the possibility of taking over other parts of the world. That's what his plan was, and I think really what the Bilderberg are doing is just uh, an extension of that. Well. Obviously, uh, in the Second World War, they used armoured tank divisions, mechanised infantry divisions to take over things. Now, what they have is this uh, massive financial empire, an incredible financial empire, which really was is, the, what is exactly what the Fourth Reich is, a financial empire. I mentioned Martin Bormann before. Now, he was Hitler's uh, deputy. He was uh, the various attempts to fake his death at the end of the Second World War. It's quite clear now he went to South America. Uh, there are several books about that. I mean, probably the best is called Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile, which is uh, was written by Paul Manning in the 1980, early 1980s. Now, he had trouble getting that book published, Paul Manning, but Paul had been the CBS news correspondent for Western Europe during the Second World War, for example, you know, reporting back daily to Americans on, uh, on the radio about how the war was running. I mean, he, he flew bombing missions, for example, with American and British troops who risked his life with the troops on the ground too. Uh, and at the end of the war, he wanted to make it absolutely clear that, uh, the, that the Nazis had not been defeated. And then what they'd done is that they buried their treasure and then they'd laundered all their money through Sullivan and Cromwell's law firm in, in New York and were recreating their Third Reich as a financial Fourth Reich. Now, Borman was a bureaucrat and he created 750 companies. Uh, those companies in, in the 19, we're talking about in the 1950s now. Uh, and those companies were then staffed with former SS people and also new recruits, people who were similar ways of thinking. And we're also involved in this kind of cult idea of oh, we're, we're better than everybody else, this kind of master race idea. And, and so that's what we see in many of our boardrooms to this day is people who really, I mean, you know, should be wearing swastikas, but they're not. They are sitting around in boardrooms and they're commanding the takeover, not using tanks, but using things like hostile takeover bids and also using very draconian measures of competition to take out their competition in the business world. So, you know, that's really what we've got is instead of panzer divisions now, we've got these giant uh, forthright corporations, the sort of spawn of Martin Bormann and his uh, post Second World War Nazi empire that he created from his little offices in South America. And do you understand the European Union as having essentially come from the Bilderberg Group's ideas back in the 1950s? Certainly, that's what many people have said who were involved in the early stages of the Bilderberg Group, is that that was clearly going to be one of their main missions in the 1950s, was to create a United States of Europe. Mm. I mean, we already see that much of our legislation here in Britain is dictated from <laughs> from the EU. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we had Margaret Thatcher's death recently. It's very interesting, I think, that... Um, and very characteristic of this kind of postmodern world we live in with absolutely no investigative journalism and, you know, the same lies parroted right across the mainstream media to see, because Margaret Thatcher was brought down in 1990 because she was resisting European Monetary Union. Now, look what that has brought to the countries that embraced it. 
And I think she had a lasting effect on the Conservative Party, actually, by being so emphatic about that in 1990, you know, with her real fans and real followers. You know, it's almost as if the first time she actually decided she was going to have a policy, which was her policy, she realised actually she wasn't in charge. And of course, she was then knifed in the back by the very people who, over the last few weeks since her death, have been on our TV screens uh, talking about how wonderful she was. These were actually her enemies. Uh, Kenneth Clark, for example, was uh, was on uh, Question Time, BBC Question Time, with uh, Bullingdon Club member David Dimbleby in the chair, uh, explaining how what a wonderful person Margaret Thatcher was and how right she was. Well, actually, he was one of the key people who brought about her political downfall. Margaret Thatcher herself, according to Jim Tucker, said that she thought it was a privilege to be denounced by the Bilderberg Group. Huh. But that, that right. was the point at which she realised that actually it wasn't her that was in charge at all, because many of her policies, including the poll tax, were actually devised by Victor Rothschild who was a Labour peer. I mean, he'd been, he'd been uh, in and out of checkers for probably about 15 years by the end of her premiership, certainly during the Heath government and the Wilson government, I'm not sure about Callaghan, but certainly before Thatcherism, Victor Rothschild was a, was a big player. I mean, he's one of these kind of uh, eminence grease figures behind the scenes, a little bit like uh, Prince Bernhard was and uh, uh, other people in the beginning of the Bilderberg conference. He was making, doing machinations uh, but he didn't really want to have any kind of public profile. Victor Rothschild was one of the people that drew up the legislation for the poll tax, which was such a disaster and also a completely unfair tax, asking people who had no money or very little to actually pay the same as rich people, a regressive tax, which caused riots in London. Mm. And also, Victor Rothschild was behind the sacking of the Director General of the BBC back in 1987. And, you know, I, as someone that used to work there, would very much point to that as, as an important episode in the downfall of the BBC. Now, you know, when the BBC first started in the 30s, it was actually very right-wing. You know, it was incredibly pro-establishment, actually rather fascist. In the 30s, for example, Churchill was kept off the BBC because he had anti-Hitler views. And there was Lord Reith, who was the first director general of the BBC and really started it, was actually pro-Hitler. I mean, that was what was going on in the 1930s. All we were getting was a kind of, and the Daily Mail, of course, as well, was, was pro-Hitler stuff. Isn't this guy wonderful? And the views which were sceptical about Hitler were completely kept off our mainstream press in Britain. Uh, the BBC uh, very much as well. And it was only very much later when it became clear that Hitler was menacing many British interests, basically in 1939, that uh, Churchill was allowed on the BBC for the first time. Then we had 40 years or so of the BBC being quite good, which was when I was growing up, most of it, you know, in the 1960s and 70s. But in 1987, Victor Rothschild asked Marmaduke Hussey if he could sack the Director General because uh, Alistair Milne, who was Director General at the time, was making quite a lot of programmes which were anti-Thatcher. Both sides, you know, they were having things which were against the left-wing Labour, but also against Thatcher. One very memorable one was called Maggie's Militant Tendency, which was, uh, it was at the time of Labour militant. There was a lot of criticism of the left-wing Labour groups around Britain being very, you know, sort of terribly socialist, and they were called militant. They were into actually having strikes and things like this. And Maggie's Militant Tendency had a look at people like Neil Hamilton and others, and Jonathan Aitken in the far right of the Tory party, going along to fascist meetings, for example, coming out with fascist views, racist views. And, um, and this did not go down very well with Margaret Thatcher. And so at that point, Victor Rothschild, who bizarrely was a, a Labour peer, I think he was actually an infiltrator into the Labour Party, really, rather than had any real interest in 
the interests of um, you know ordinary working people. But he he uh, he asked Marmaduke Hussey, "Can you sack the Director General?" And Marmaduke Hussey put that into in his autobiography. And of course, from that moment onwards, the BBC went downhill because if you've got a coward or a control freak or a combination of both in the driving seat, then the organisation's creative ability really starts to crumble from the top down. The person who replaced him was Michael Checkland, who was an accountant. And then we got the great John Burt, who was the director general when I was working there, who was introducing all these kind of same sort of things they're doing in the health service at the moment, the NHS um, in order to try and turn everything into uh, some sort of bureaucratic nightmare. I mean, basically, you know, in the old days, it was one big corporation when I first started working there where you can just phone up anybody and, you know, get anybody to, you know, the whole... It was like you were one big organisation. What Bert did, uh, he brought in this thing called Producer Choice, which was nothing to do with Producer Choice, of course. But what it did is it set down very harsh lines in between programmes and between organisations where in order to contact another part of the BBC, you had to get permission and it all had to be accounted for and uh, some kind of cost estimate needed to be put on it. It was really a way of destroying the corporation and that was all started, uh, really, it all started when Margaret Thatcher and Marmaduke Hussey and Victor Rothschild got rid of Alistair Milne uh, because the BBC had been actually doing its job, which was to be impartial and independent of government. I mean, that was the whole point of it. It's a little bit like, if you go back to medieval times, you know, the difference between the Pope and the King. In order to have good leadership and good governance, you've got to have separation of powers. You know, you've got to have the Pope saying, no, do it this way, and the King saying, oh, I want to do it that way. And then at least you get a discussion and a debate. At the moment in the West, we have this groupthink that Orwell predicted. Of course, he was working at the World Service, BBC World Service. You know, he could see the way the dangers in the kinds of influences in the BBC management. Now, I would suggest that the only sorts of organisations that you should trust in terms of media are ones which don't have lots of tiers of management. I mean, this is one of the big problems that you've got with the BBC and other Sky, people like that, is you've got a lot of management. Just let the journalists get on with their job. You don't need to manage them the whole time. If there's a problem, okay, there may be a problem, but they don't need to be having all these like personnel departments or whatever, keeping an eye on them all the time. Just, you know, then you don't get free journalism. You don't get people saying what they think. And you end up with a Soviet-style system where actually nobody that watches the TV or reads the newspapers really believes what they're reading. Indeed. Uh, Going back to Margaret Thatcher, did she have anything to do with the Bilderberg Group? Did she attend? No, I don't think she ever did, as far as I know. But, uh, I mean, what happened after her is quite well known about, which is... um, the rise of Blair and Clinton was clearly, you know, absolutely welded into the Bilderbergs because, for example, the year before Clinton got the Democratic Party nomination, he was an attendee at the Bilderberg conference. The year before Tony Blair became the leader of the Labour Party in opposition, he attended the Bilderberg conference. The other thing is, I mean, Blair, he also went along to meetings even though he wasn't supposed to be there. You know, he wasn't on the official list that the Bilderbergers put out even in those days. Didn't uh, didn't the previous uh, Labour leader, John Smith, reject the Bilderbergs? Well, he went along to at least one meeting. One of the things that anecdotally I heard through someone who's been covering these conferences before I even came across them was that Smith had gone back to the Bilderbergs saying, I want to bring one of my economic advisors along next year because he was rather frustrated that the Bilderbergs didn't seem to understand economics, even though they controlled most of the money in the Western world. Well, I don't think John Smith actually realised that they weren't interested in what was going to be best for Europe. They were only interested in what was going to be best for them. And unfortunately, John Smith died of a heart attack uh, in between time, so he never got a chance to go back to the conference to argue his case. 
And of course, Tony Blair was elected through the electoral colleges in the Labour Party. He was elected head of the Labour Party after Smith. So there was a complete change, really, in Labour ideology. I mean, I, I actually know here in Bristol, there were some friends of mine, uh, journalists, who were at a press conference with Blair uh, around about 1990. And he had a whole load of Labour Party apparatchiks with him at the time. This is before he was ever leader. Uh, and they were clearly grooming him. They were saying to the journalists afterwards, right, how did he do? You know, we want to know what you think, what we need to change about this guy. So, I mean, anything to do with the Bilderbergers and the people who seem to come to success through being associated with them, that has nothing to do with democracy. Mm -hmm. The idea is that, well, democracy can be bypassed and fixed. And so we are the group to do it. Come to us. You know, we'll fix it. And that's essentially what they seem to do. They, they take any interest in what ordinary people want. But democracy is actually quite vulnerable. You know, unless there's somebody really making sure that nobody is infiltrating, fixing the system, then we have some serious problems. I mean, one of the people we haven't spoken about who is very big in Bilderberg is Henry Kissinger. Kissinger is seen as a sort of guru, but actually he's not. You know, he, I mean, he's a very, very powerful guy, but he's certainly no guru. I mean, if you were to follow the, the ideas and the policies of Kissinger, you probably end up without hardly anybody left on the planet because he doesn't <laughs> seem to care for anyone at all apart from himself. He's running basically a massive global protection racket, the biggest protection racket in the world, and anybody else that wants to run a protection racket like China or Russia got to deal with Kissinger. Or say, for example, you're a leader of a small African country and um, you know, you're finding problems on your borders, people coming across and killing your people in villages and burning them down and this kind of thing. Well, you go to the UN and the UN say, oh, it's a very, we're very sorry to hear that, you know, uh, we'll send some observers in, everything still carries on. And then you realise eventually, well, I'm going to have to go and talk to Kissinger. So you get out your credit card, a million dollars, apparently that's the minimum it is to talk to him, disappears off your credit card, and uh, you have a little chat with Henry, and he says, I'd like you to do this for me. And you do that, whatever it is he asks, and the, the attacks across your border will stop. And so you'll have a little bit of peace. So, I mean, this is essentially the way people like Kissinger operate. And also, I mean, you just can't trust a word the guy says. I mean, you know, he, he's trying to make out that there was no problem with what he was doing bombing Cambodia even all the way back in 1969. So, I mean, even though he was Secretary of State in the US, you know, he's not involved formally in global politics. But, I mean, that global politics has, since then has been privatised by the likes of him and he's financed by... Uh, the likes of the Rothschild family uh, and the Rockefellers, that uh, David Rockefeller's financial empire seems to back everything that Kissinger does. So you, you've got what is essentially an incredibly high-level international mafia, and they're based here in the West. They seem to have bought up almost all of the political influence through Parliament and also media influence through the big media networks and corporations, and obviously through using lawyers to take out anybody that's in that system that they don't like. Massively well-paid lawyers. I mean, they've got money to burn, so they just, you know, it doesn't cost them anything to do that. And we have become the evil empire. I mean, look what we've been doing in places like Syria and Libya, literally invading sovereign countries, fostering mass terrorism in these countries in order to bring the legitimate government to its knees. Now, we are doing exactly what Adolf Hitler was doing in the 1930s, terrorizing countries in order to take them over. And there really is no difference between what Hitler was doing back in those days and what NATO and the Western countries are doing now. Do you think there was a precedent set for this with Operation Gladio? Because a lot of people point to Bilderberg Group as having some kind of involvement with that operation. Do you think there's anything to that? Well, yes. I mean, certainly the uh, president of the Italian 
Supreme Court, uh, Impossimato, has been saying that he is, I mean, I've not seen this because it's all been published in Italy and in Italian. I haven't translated it into English, but he's got evidence that the Bilderbergers were behind Operation Gladio uh, in Italy. That is to say that NATO were hiring fascists to blow up banks and kill loads of innocent people. I mean, uh, we're talking about the Bologna railway station bombing, all sorts of other bomb attacks right through Italy in the 1980s, and blame it on the Russians. So the idea is, you know, if there's somebody that you don't like, but that is actually quite a nice person and isn't doing anything to you, what you do is you go up and start killing people and say it was them, it was them that did it. You know, I'm sure a psychiatrist would be able to analyse this a lot better than me. It's like self-harming. You get a knife from the kitchen, you start stabbing yourself in the side, and then you go running down the road saying such and such did it, such and such did it. This is essentially what they're doing, and our leadership is not only killing people in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, Yemen, Syria, Libya, and other places, Mali. Our leadership is also killing us. That Operation Gladio is absolutely documented, and if your listeners don't know much about it, you know, all you have to do is look at the Swiss, the Belgian, and the Italian parliamentary inquiries into Operation Gladio. And, and the Brits and the SAS and the SBS in Britain were lead, lead people in that, and MI6. The idea being that they wanted to have the most secret operation ever in order to pretend that the other enemy that was supposed to be the Russians at the time was actually actively trying to destroy us when they weren't at all. It's a little bit like you go back to the 1960s in Cuba. I mean, look at that whole situation there. They had nearly had a, a nuclear war, but the Americans actually wanted a nuclear war. Strategic Air Command, back in 1962, when they discovered um, that there were boats heading to Cuba with these nuclear missiles on them, the Strategic Air Command people, General Power and people like that, said to Kennedy at the time, said, look, they haven't got any nukes right now in Cuba, so in order to stop them installing them there, we can just invade now. Uh, Kennedy quite wisely said, no, I don't think that's a good idea. We're not really supposed to do that. You know, this is the problem now where we don't have that moral imperative in our leadership in the West. Any of our uh, Western leaders don't have the moral sense that Kennedy had in those days. And the fact was, actually, they already had tactical nuclear weapons on the ground in Cuba. So if Kennedy had said to the, uh, the US forces, yes, you can invade Cuba, there would have been a nuclear war. And they actually said they wanted a nuclear war. This is on the record that because the Russians were building up nuclear weapons at quite a rate and that at some point in the future they might overtake the Americans. So it made sense to have a nuclear war with no more than, and this is a quote from one of these top generals, I think he was Curtis Lee May, that with no more than expectable casualties. Now that expectable casualties figure, you're talking tens of millions of people. So this is the kind of attitude there is within some of these power freaks in the U.S. military. And, of course, they are the people who are the sort of um, foot soldiers for many of the Bilderbergers' policies. So, you know, we can look at the people who are actually doing the killing, but what about the people who are organizing it and financing it? And that is the Bilderberg conference, the Bilderberg meeting. And going back to what you were saying about this being well documented with respect to Operation Gladio, there was, many years ago, there was a BBC documentary, wasn't there, produced by the Time Watch series about this, but I don't know whether it's easy to get hold of that anymore. Oh yeah, that's all online now. I mean, we managed to get it, dig it out from the archives at Falmouth College back in probably about 2007, something like that. Been lost, you know, but, but someone managed to get a hold of a copy of it and put it online, so you can watch that. And that's BBC Time Watch. The film was a three-part film made by Alan Frankovich, who's dead now. He died in mysterious circumstances in Houston Customs Hall. But he also made the definitive film about the Lockerbie bombings, which is called The Maltese Double Cross. 
you know, he was a proper investigative journalist that we don't, sort of that we don't have anymore. He made another film as well called On Company Business, all about the CIA back in the 1980s. Frankovich really was probably the greatest investigative documentary maker of our modern era. He was born the son of a Peruvian mining engineer, so he saw at first hand right across South America the effects of American CIA policy, you know, genocidal policies going on throughout Latin America where legitimate leaders were being assassinated, death squads were being put in place, basically fascist military rule uh, in Brazil and all, all sorts of other places. So, And then he went on as he, as he grew up and became a teenager and in his early 20s went to L.A. film school. Frankovich is probably the best investigative journalist of modern times, and yet it's amazing that very few people have ever even heard of him. And he made this three-part uh, Time Watch series for Lawrence Reese, I think, was the editor at Time Watch at the time in 1992-93, which was absolutely stunning. I mean, he's got interviews with fascists in that program that explain that, you know, what we're doing is, uh, we thought what we were doing was for our own cause, but it turns out that actually it was just in order to scare the entire population of Italy. I mean, that was this one particular guy who was being interviewed, in order to drive the whole population into the hands of its leaders so that the population begged the leaders for more security and more protection. Uh, and this is an age-old tactic that goes back you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, but it's uh, certainly nothing to do with democracy, and it's not in the people's interests to have their leaders murdering them so that uh, the leaders can con the people into thinking uh, that they're doing them some sort of favour by having a police state. No, indeed. Um, just uh, turning to something a little bit less uh, deep, perhaps, uh, what, is, what is the evidence that this year's meeting is going to be in the UK? Well, it's as always, it's a little bit circumstantial. You know, there's a hint that come across from the US, from Jim Tucker, that it might be here in Britain. And this conference facility fits the bill. It's a five-star hotel with golfing facilities, plenty of uh, land around it, so it's easy to completely seal it off. Place near Watford, is that right? Yeah, it's on the outskirts of Watford in Hertfordshire. Funnily enough, though, the, uh, the police and crime commissioner of Hertfordshire these new police commissioners that we've had elected with, uh, I don't know, something like 15 <laughs> Indeed, yes. of the electorate Indeed. Are voting for them. He's come out this last week and said, I think there should be more citizens' arrests. Well, I agree with him. You know, he's, he's saying that there's been a fall in the number of citizens' arrests and there should be more of them. Well, that's ironic that the Bilderbergers, it seems, are coming to his area. But you can never be 100% sure. All you can do... You know, the Bilderbergers themselves are so arrogant that they never make any announcement that it is a Bilderberg conference, unless it's really obvious and all over the international news, until the last person leaves the meeting. And they are still living in this world where they think that the whole thing can and should be secret. Well, we've had enough of all that, and we know that they are mafia, we know that they're criminals, and we're not happy with the idea that they think they can con the world into thinking, oh, it's just a little innocent private meeting, because it quite clearly isn't when you've got the people that control most of the money in the Western world in there, mm. uh, and that they're having some sort of festival to persuade our representatives to actually, actually, in a way, what they're doing is they're kind of subtly holding a gun against the head of our politicians. Now that, as far as I'm concerned, is not uh, the legitimate sort of thing that should go on in some kind of nice little private meeting. That, uh, that kind of intimidation and mafia tactics needs to be exposed for the whole world to see and closed yeah. down. So tell me, do you think you'll be going along to this uh, very nice, gentle meeting that's going to take place if it happens here? 
Uh, well, I'm not sure if I'm invited, but even if I'm not, I'm certainly, <laughs> I'm certainly planning to go down there, yeah. Yeah, and didn't you attend one in the past and have some rather unpleasant experiences with that? Well, I, I wouldn't say necessarily unpleasant. I've been to both, uh, well, I've been to two so far back in the 2000s, uh, and very, very interesting. I mean, you know, the positive thing that comes out of all these meetings is that anybody that's switched on and understands that the Western world is being run by a bunch of fascists and mafia types is that all those people can then get together in a hotel nearby the Bilderberg meeting. They can try and figure out who's trying to infiltrate them. And this is always quite entertaining. But then everybody can get together and discuss ideas, swap stories and tactics. And also it means that it's not one person or two people hanging around outside the conference like it used to be in the old days, criticising what's going on inside, that you've actually got quite a massive contingent now of uh, frustrated mm. people who are just disgusted that our authorities don't surround the place and arrest them. Well, well this is an interesting aspect to all of this, is you've got all these police and security around the conference. Why don't they just go in and arrest everybody? Then they have no more problems. And also, uh, you'll find that many of the difficult things that are going on in the Western world, that is to say, ridiculous war crimes and foreign wars, as well as uh, horrendous bailouts and money being stolen from people's bank accounts, hospitals being closed down, schools being closed down, people being thrown out of work, all that can go. And we can start uh, putting the Western world back into shape again and look forward to a much brighter future for our children and our children's children, rather than this ridiculous death spiral of debt which the Bilderbergers are sucking us into for the last 10 or 15 years. What advice would you have for people who might want to uh, attend and see what's going on down there? Do you think they should be fearful at all because of the increase in security or anything like that? No, well, there's no need to be fearful, I don't think. Um, you know, why should they? You're with friends and you'll find that there's lots of other people who will be supportive of you. So, I mean, the thing is, the Bilderbergers thrive off fear. What they want is everyone to be afraid of them. Yeah. So if you start playing that game, then I'm afraid you're actually part of their system. The uh, best thing to do is just to step out of that and to uh, start to demand justice because without these people being arrested, you know, it doesn't make sense for our police to go and arrest somebody who's speeding or arrest somebody who's, you know, maybe shoplifting or whatever and put them in jail. If you can't put the big criminals in jail, then your entire system is a waste of time. And I think that's the message that needs to go out with this particular conference. You know, we need to put those people in jail. Otherwise, the rest of the democracy and the rest of our society is a mockery. Okay, well, just before we end, do you want to get out uh, the information about your website again for people who want to find out more? Yeah, well, it's Bilderberg.org. We've got lots of the historical facts about the Bilderbergs and you know, anything that's really important, I try and make sure it goes on there still. But the most active sites that I'm involved in are uh, on the Bilderberg Forum, which is a, is a you can click a link to the forum at the top of the Bilderberg.org page, uh, which has got you know, that's more interactive. Or the 9-11 forum, which where we discuss a lot of the other things that the mainstream media are keeping from us. The other thing to do is you can hear our Friday drive time, two-hour politics program we do here from Bristol, which looks at, you know, national and international stories. Uh, every Friday, you can listen to that streaming live online between 5 and 7 every Friday evening drive time. And the website for that is if you're not within Bristol and you can't tune in on FM, you can have a listen on www.thisweek.org.uk. And one of the things I try and do with that show is make sure that there are plenty of links. 
you know so if we're talking about something which is a bit new and difficult or a bit contentious that you can go and actually click on there and have a look into it for yourself because i would say don't trust me everybody nowadays has to make their own decisions about the way the world works because the Bilderbergers and people like them what they want is to sort of take over the top of the pyramid they want to be the people that decide the way that global events are interpreted mm. And so, you know, you can take another take on that. And that's why I put the links in is so that people can get the real good info and make up their own minds about how they think the world is being run and how it should be run. Because I think actually it could be a, a hell of a lot better than it is at the moment. What we've got is we've got a massive world, which is, like I said earlier, turning into a kind of people farm, looking after the farmers. And I think it's great that George Orwell, of course, chose Animal Farm as his mm-hmm. analogy because he's, you know, he's absolutely right in that the global elite, with all this money, the fantastic amounts of money, they do see us as animals. In fact, they see themselves, in some cases, as sort of top dogs. And this is not a civilized way to behave. You know, we need to rise above this dog-eat-dog law of the jungle mindset if civilization is going to survive. So I've given you a few of the websites, and, you know, you can find more from there. You know, thisweek.org.uk for the radio show. And the discussion forum, probably the best one on general issues, is 911forum.org.uk. And then there's a link at Bilderberg.org to the Bilderberg discussions. Great. I shall make sure that I put those links in the show notes. So, Tony, thank you ever so much indeed for talking to us. It's been a great pleasure. You've given us loads and loads of information. It's almost almost impossible to keep up with you, actually. But uh, thank you ever so much for sharing your, your knowledge and your experience with us. Okay, thanks. And I hope that, uh, you know, people don't get phased by all this. Uh, It's just a continuation through history of tyranny. And I think, you know, we're coming to grips with a lot of the problems that are happening with uh, internationally uh, right across the world. The Internet has made such a massive difference. Absolutely. Uh, And what with that combined with... George Orwell in his 1984, I think people actually have got their heads around it. In a weird way, our mainstream media is really only talking to itself nowadays. There's only a few people who are very cowardly, I suppose, who really believe what they see on the mainstream media anymore. Most of our young people uh, just dismiss it. You really think that's the case? Yeah. Because I do do sometimes wonder what that really is, because most of the people that I speak to, at least openly, seem to say that they do believe what the mainstream media says. But that's what they say openly, and what they're thinking inside, I don't know. Well, I think there's, there's more and more questioning of it going on. You know, the thing is that there's a psychological aspect to all of this, is that people don't want to think that things could be so bad. But, of course... Once the problems start coming home, as they are in Britain here, you know, this is all very well if you're watching it on the TV and it's going on in Afghanistan, but when you should see friends of yours who are disabled being deprived of enough uh, to feed themselves, this kind of thing, then you start to realise, well, this maybe these people that are running us are incompetent and something needs to be done. OK, thanks ever so much indeed. All right. Take care. Cheers. Bye.